Welcome to To Hate or Not To Hate. Uh, I'm Nick Cannon, joined uh, by Mr. Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of the ADL, uh, and we are in the ADL headquarters for a very meaningful conversation and the presentation and the launch of a forum, which we call To Hate or Not To Hate That. You and I created together because, as we know, the climate uh, currently is in need for some honest conversation. Yes. Uh, and I will we'll unpack it, but we've been we've been developing this for a few years. Yeah, I think since the summer of 2020. Yes, and right now it's probably seems like there's no better time than to launch it. We've always been talking about when and how we want to launch this in a a nature of a symposium of having a lot of dialogue about literature and and uh, conversations that we see online. But before we dive deep into that, I would love to even know, you know, even what the ADL is. Sure. And who are you to them? Because and then I'll share when my first interaction. <laughs> well, how we met. With, how we met, and it was That's it wasn't. Story. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the the most friendliest interaction to it begin with <laughs> it was not yeah so but uh i mean to break it down because sure. we're, we're talking to a lot of people that just hear the letters and really don't know what the adl is so the adl first of all nick i'm so glad we're doing this yes it has been like literally more than two years in the making yes and i think it's never been more urgent yes and i think what we're dealing with is urgent Mm. Like, I think hate is corrosive to democracy. Yes. I think it literally, it decays society. So if we can't figure this out. Right. Like, there's going to be nothing left to figure out. I mean, I think the stakes are super high. Yes. So I'm just really glad that we're going to have the chance to talk about everything. Yes. Because I think Indeed. that's what we need to do. Yes, because we, we, we got to come together as a brotherhood or are we going to perish. That's right. And uh, in that, to say, though, I mean, as you know, there's a bunch of information out there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there's a lot of tropes. There's a lot of beliefs of yeah. what the ADL is. How would you describe the ADL? So the ADL is the oldest anti-hate organization in the world. It was founded in 1913 around the lynching of a Jewish man, Leo Frank. In Leo the South. Frank. So let, let's kind of go back in time. So, you know... In America, at the turn of the 20th century, Jews in this country lived with what we might describe as sort of, you know, systemic discrimination. Right. I would distinguish that from structural discrimination because I don't think it was by design, like so many of our systems I do believe are designed to create, you know, barriers to the success of black people. Right. But systemic discrimination that was widespread and it infected so many different segments of society. So Jews couldn't buy homes in many places. Right. They couldn't attend many universities or the quotas kept them down. Right. They couldn't work in many professions. Um, they were routinely kept out of social places and there was widespread defamation in the media. And so in this environment, uh, a man named Leo Frank, a Jewish man from New York, went down to, to Georgia. To Georgia went down to Atlanta to manage a family business. It was a pencil manufacturing facility. And uh, while he was there, a young uh, white Christian girl 
was found sexually assaulted and strangled to death in the bathroom of this plant. And so they immediately blamed the Jew. Right. Right, the Yankee Jew. Right. Now, he didn't do it. There was exculpatory evidence that made it clear that he didn't do it, but it was a quickly a frenzied media environment. Mm. And we know about those. Yeah, we've seen that before. It's yes. like similar to where we are today in a lot of ways. But Indeed. So he was immediately, like in the court of public opinion, he was guilty. So he was quickly arrested. There was a bit of a, what we might call a sham trial, and he was wrongfully convicted, and he was sentenced to death. Now, the governor of the state of Georgia intervened because he hadn't had due process and reduced uh, Frank's sentence from the death penalty to life imprisonment. And the mob was so enraged by that act of leniency, they tore Leo Frank from his jail cell and they hung him from a tree. Right. Right. And while the body was still hanging from the rope, the town, and it was all of the town's elders who did this. Right. It was like a marginal or some random group of people. It was well-coordinated. And while the body was still, again, hanging from the rope on the branch, the town gathered around. They held a large, like, picnic beneath the corpse. And they took photographs. Yes. Uh, they took pictures and turned those photographs into postcards. Postcards. Right? And they gave them out as souvenirs, and you can still find them. You know, there's a whole very grotesque subculture of like lynching memorabilia indeed and you can still find these things so the reality is is that boys and young men of color even even black women and girls were much more frequently i mean they were regularly lynched in the south right right this was a thing that happened it was almost like a um a social practice right this was the first time a jew had been killed in this way and our community, from the time that the accusation started flying to the trial, got mobilized. And out in Chicago, a handful of Jewish men said, we need to do something about this. They were lawyers. Uh, and they created an organization they called the Anti-Defamation League. And they did it as part of B'nai B'rith, which was a bigger communal nonprofit. Right. It's like a unit of it. And they wrote, um, you know, they wrote a charter for this new organization. We would like call it like a manifesto. Right. Like, uh, um, you know, like a Jerry Maguire manifesto. <laughs> right, right. And, and in it were the words that they used. They wrote these words, again, 100, almost 110 years ago. Right. We still use them today as our mission statement. Right. They're still written on the wall of every ADL office across America that the purpose of the Anti-Defamation League is to, quote, stop the defamation of the Jewish people and secure justice and fair treatment to all. Right. So what's so fascinating about that is, like 110 years ago, the Jewish community did not have like cultural capital or social standing right. or meaningful economic resources or any kind of political access. I mean, this was a fragmented, vulnerable, weak community. Right. And yet, and so the idea that they would defend themselves, that made sense. But right. They didn't have anything, didn't have a leg to stand on. But the idea that they would say, we are going to defend ourselves and we are going to defend others, justice, fair treatment to all. Right. That was like, Nick, an audacious, right, crazy idea. Like, who are you? You don't have anything. How are you going to defend everybody? Right. But I think, you know, the founders of ADL, they realized that Jewish people can only be safe when everyone is safe. Right. The Jewish people, only when everyone is free. Can Jewish people be free? So this is before intersectionality. 
This is before social justice. This is before any of those things. Right. And yet, they had this beautiful, powerful idea, and it's literally what's, you know. So in this statement, and, and what you know, what's people working? watching this will yeah. probably say, and I, you made the point too, to where in our community we lynching and in the picnics yeah. of celebrating, you know, black death. Yeah. Uh, it was so frequent. Yeah. Uh, that it was an anomaly to see a white man treated in such a way, but for a community to be able to rally together and create an organization to do exactly what yeah. you just said, not only protect your own, but then say justice for all, is to our community, we stand and, and wonder why why has that not been done for us? Well, I think, look, I think NAACP was created maybe in 1907 or 08. And I think the Urban League came a year or two after that. But I think part of what happened here is, like, Jews being lynched in America, that was an anomaly. Right. But Jews being lynched and being persecuted and being massacred in Europe have been happening for 1,500 odd years, right? And so there was a long history of Jews being brutalized and raped and drawn and quartered, you know, in England and in France and in Germany and in Spain and in right. Italy and in Portugal and so on. So I think for these, in most of those countries, you know, Jews didn't have any rights. They didn't have, so they didn't have civil rights like we think about it. There weren't constitutions in those places that guaranteed Jews rights. They were ghettoized and to use that word, traumatized. Yeah. So when it happened here in America, it was like, whoa, this is supposed to be the place where we're safe. This is supposed to be the country founded by uh, people escaping religious persecution, you know, those initial English settlers. And when George Washington, there's a very famous letter that he wrote after visiting a synagogue in Rhode Island in 1790-something. Right where he wrote that Jews will always have safety in the United States, right. where everyone can be under their own vine and fig tree, right, and be not afraid. He wrote that, you know, quoting from the Old Testament. So I think that moment in American history was so, and by the way, just a few years earlier in Europe, you had something called the Dreyfus Trial. There's a very well-known Jewish, French, uh, I think he was a colonel, Right. the army, who was accused of treason, the kind of trope of dual loyalty. You're not really French, you're a Jew. Mm. Even though he was a remarkably patriotic French citizen. Right. So Jews thought that just happened, we can't let it happen here, and that's what catalyzed the ADL. So in that, in saying, it's interesting to me, and again, we're not, you're not speaking for all Jewish people, I'm no. not speaking for all black people. Uh, but in this forum, the goal here is to have a safe space, yeah. to have uncomfortable conversations without yeah. consequence. Yeah. And we want to create a symposium. It's not always going to be just you and I right. pontificating, uh, but it's more about giving the experts, the scholars, we're calling to them to say, help this conversation occur, because right now there's a lot of beliefs out yeah. there that we aren't allies, that we yeah. are enemies, that we're behind enemy lines. And this right. is, and speaking to my, my own story and my yeah. own testimony, when I heard the ADL was after me, 
<laughs> I, I, it was one of those. The Jonathan Greenblatt was coming after you. Yeah, it's, we should talk about that. It's because, career ending, right? Like it's the thing where you should be concerned. And is that the view, like in the entertainment world, or maybe it's the black community, or the overlap of the two? Like, is that the view that when the ADL knocks on your door, so to speak? Yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy in that sense because one, like I said, we don't even. I, I didn't know the ADL stood for the Anti-Defamation League. But you had heard of the ADL before. Of course, I heard of Jonathan Greenblatt and yeah. that in, in this cancel culture that it can all go away if yeah. the ADL is unhappy. And <laughs> when we're seeing everything with whether it's from Kanye to Kyrie, uh, it, yeah. it's, it's like, oh, wow. Why is it that when a black man speaks his mind right consequences severe consequences occur right because in that concept it's like oh you better not say that because the adl will come after you and cancel you right and and from my own story i you know i i said some things in a podcast setting uh that were anti-Semitic and there were some falsehoods. There were some things that I had incorrect, but in the nature, it was a conversation supposed right. to be about understanding and moving forward, reconciliation. Right. Uh, but the way you and I were introduced to each other because of something that was cut together on social media right. that was deemed anti-Semitic and it was problematic for you, right. for your community. Right. And, you know, we don't always agree on, you know, our beliefs, but we got to a space where we can have great dialogue and understanding. But I'm gonna be, I'm gonna keep it a stack. I was scared, you know, off top, and and it gets, it's almost this idea of trauma versus trauma, right? Because you're protecting your community, right? And I'm protecting from my beliefs and right. my community to be able to speak as a free black man in America. Right. But you're saying, no, you can't say those types right. of things because there's some accountability based off of your form. It's just so funny because I think for Jewish people and like for me, you were scared and like we're scared in a different way. Right. Like the same old anti-Semitic myths getting recycled right. that lead to people getting killed. Right. Like myths about Jewish power, myths about... Jews controlling things, myths about, you know, maybe Jews and money. Right. And it's so interesting because I think to a degree the black community, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way I see it, there is almost like a, like we were talking about, like an enslavement trauma. Yes. Right? That's exactly what it is. We feel like we, we can't speak without, you know, again, we come from a space where it was illegal to read. Right. You know, and so when we reference books and things of that nature and we're told because you posted a book right. because you said something your whole career can be can right. be over you and and that that's slavery trauma that's right. who are they to tell me I can't post a book on my forum or a, a, a movie or whatever because then that shows me they don't want me to know the truth right so it's funny because there's that enslavement trauma that's like what are they hiding from me or what are they doing and Jews have a kind of existential trauma because we see people saying, ah, the Jews control things. And that myth has led to Jews being killed. Indeed. But it's really hard because anti-Semitism, like I think anti-Semitism and racism both 
come from the same kind of well, that poison well of prejudice. Yes. But the way anti-Semitism works, it's a kind of conspiracy theory. It is. And so if you have this conspiracy that the Jews control things and Jews protest that, then it's like, aha, you see? They're controlling things. It's so a it's, vicious cycle. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle because it's reinforcing. So it's for the Jewish person, it's this sort of catch-22. Well, I'm damned if I don't do anything and people continue to believe this, and then people vic you know, victimize me because of it, and I'm damned if I don't. So it's, you, it's like a lose-lose situation. Right. But it's so interesting because I think Jewish people would say, like, nobody gets canceled for being anti-Semitic, that there's constantly Jewish jokes, there's constantly Jewish jokes. So there are a couple examples of it here and there, but for the most part, nobody says boo. Like when we had the situation with Kanye, right. Adidas immediately announced that he was gonna, his contract with them would be under review right. after he wore a White Lives Matter t-shirt, right. which obviously is, you know, I think is super offensive. Very. Racist. Yes. And then he said, he went when I think it was Puff Daddy, yeah, yeah. Diddy, yeah, yeah. Uh, texted him and said, you know, that's really not such a great idea. He wrote back to him and said, the Jews are controlling you. And he posted a screenshot, screenshot. to like Instagram. Right. And then he went on anti-Semitic tirades day after day after day. And guess what? Nobody said boo. Maybe John Legend and one or two others. But it was only when ADL got involved. The, the, Where we the said, heavy like, hand of the ADL is what people, that's what people they, saw. That's it. what they see. And ADL saw it as, why isn't there? I mean, what's going on? Like, why isn't there more outrage about this? So it's so interesting because from one perspective, it's like the heavy hand of the ADL. From the other perspective, it's like, nobody, look, somebody needs to have a heavy hand. Nobody's even defending us. Right. Like, nobody's coming to our aid. It's that trauma versus trauma. So yeah. I think, can we talk just briefly? We don't have to, again, because I don't ever want to say that I have the answers or, and you know, you, I don't, yeah. you can have the answers or not. I just, yeah. I have the questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in these, because I dealt with this myself, these tropes, trigger words, and myths yeah. that we speak of, how do we differentiate as someone who wants to coexist and operate out of love and compassion for all, yeah. what's real and what's a myth and a trope? Because if we say, you know, it's a trope to say Jewish people have power, but then when we are in a facility like the ADL yeah. and we see all of the screens, and there's clearly a source of power and this is an institution in which we, and we'll get into like the federations and all of that stuff in a moment, but it's impressive. Yeah to see what the ADL has built over the hundred, last hundred plus years to when, when the community is offended, yeah. when the community is concerned about information that's out there, or people, actions, and I've, I've, I've walked these halls and yeah. seen like, and even as we look at like maps on the wall that yeah. like, you guys can pinpoint yeah. when there's defamation going on. Yeah. Like you, you know when there's white supremacists or hate that are going towards not just Jewish communities 100%. but all communities. That's power. In well, that, that like, <laughs> like it's interesting. Is it like so? ADL and the Jewish community has over after two thousand years of history has like you know literally built up the capabilities so we can protect ourselves. Right. So not so we can 
do that in order to harm or marginalize other communities. Right. So we can protect ourselves. It's this existential, deeply rooted concern 100%. that if we don't defend ourselves, nobody's going to defend us. And that's a Jewish experience. Right. Like again, your people, your 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 people being ghettoized, brutalized, and massacred frankly, annihilated. Right. So it leads you to believe if you don't defend yourself, nobody will. Right. So it's so interesting because like the way we might see it is yes, there was criticism of Mel Gibson and now he's in the movie theaters right. and he's back to being- Well, they say her. that about me. They say Nick Cannon, we, they, they, they ran him through the, the, the rings, but now he, he didn't lose his jobs. He, still, he has more jobs now. So like, yeah, I just think we have a kind of capability to try to call things out, but to mistake that for some conspiratorial power is totally wrong. It's a hard, you know, it's a hard won capability that we try to make people aware of the danger of not just anti-Semitism, although that is the core reason why this organization was founded, but all kinds of bigotry. Right. So like when I've stood up when, you know, Mexican or Latino people were being separated from their children at the borders, people coming in seeking asylum. Right. Or when we've stood up for marriage equality, when we've stood up to support, you know, civil rights for African Americans, when we stood up against anti-Muslimites, we do that because our mission compels us to. Right. Um, we don't do it because they are Jews. We do that because we are Jews and that's our tradition and that's our faith. Right. You know, the in the in the and like, you know, one of the great Jewish sages was Hillel. And he had this very famous expression, if I am not for myself, who will be? Build the capability to protect yourself. But if, I'm, if I am only for myself, what am I? Mm. So it's like intrinsic to our creed is this notion of you can't just do it for yourselves. So the idea that the Jews are somehow only doing it for themselves, the idea that the Jews have excessive power and they're using that to manipulate events or to cancel people, like strikes, I mean, it's a canard that says they're trying to cancel you, so you gotta cancel them. Right, but in, in, in the form where people aren't doing research. We know, yeah. we, even when building our forum here yeah. at Tejeda Nate, we, we wanted to initially start with a book and a book series, and we yeah. wrote, we, we've written op-eds together. Yeah, yeah. But this generation isn't necessarily checking for that. They right. wanna see sound bites. They wanna hear, they wanna see beef. They yeah. wanna, they wanna right. see us go at it, and, and there's a lot of people out there that don't want us to unify. This is totally true. There are definitely people and there are definitely parties who think it is in their interest for the mainstream black community and the mainstream Jewish community to be at odds. Yes. Now, by the way, you know, the black community is diverse. The Jewish community is diverse. We're politically diverse. We're ethnically diverse, religiously diverse. I mean, there are Jews of color. Yes. There are Many a of number of them, right? And there are Jews who daven differently, some who you might consider Reform Jews, some who might be um, Orthodox Jews, some who self-identify in segments like the Black Hebrew Israelites, which right. we should be talking about we because of all of that. Speak about that. Some who are just cultural Jews. Right. Like, wouldn't walk into a synagogue, you know, if they, if they didn't have to. Right. So I think there's variety and diversity. So I think our goal here should be to expose people in an inclusive way to all those points of view. Right. So in that, again, 
staying on the topic of the tropes and triggers in you know in dealing with the power because we will we'll view that in a different way I, I think that's one of those things where from our community or from yeah. at least from my standpoint it's impressive mm. in the sense of where it's like we want an ADL right we want a, a, the ability to if from a you know what happened with Leo Frank is horrible and the ADL was birthed out of that but then we to this day still see lynchings from whether it's George Floyd or many others that are caught on tape and on constant repeat right. so but what about the NAA, NAACP and the LDF and the Urban League and we, Color of Change and all these amazing organizations? You probably deal with them uh, from a different standpoint. Right. I'm talking about when we see people on Twitter, right. we have no connection to them. They right. feel like the elites. They feel like the uh -huh. our, our, our grandfather's organizations uh -huh. to where we see the ADL active on social media. We yeah. see – we don't – we're, they're not speaking the same language, and probably the closest thing that we did see in 2020 was Black Lives Matter, and mm -hmm. even we see the debacle in which that turned into because yeah. people started to now even say that Black Lives Matter was hate speech, and then the organization, the nonprofit that was created out of that was corrupt, and then so is that the, true or not true, or do, is that the sentiment among the among the black community? Would you say, or in my opinion, the way I view it, it's just it's it's torn it's it's yeah. it's not cohesive in yeah. the sense of where what we see we see there's a a a unifying infrastructure amongst mm -hmm. the jewish community mm -hmm. that we have yet to accomplish at the level that the adl is so even in a even when we see terms like and this is to me if going back to the tropes anti-semitic or i was deemed as an anti-semite right when and whether it's myself, Kyrie Irving, mm. Kanye West, mm. many other athletes, uh, many other entertainers, that term. Are you just talking about black entertainers and athletes? Or even, or, or, I mean, I can only speak for right. black, but even from Mel Gibson to, you know, many others, it's, it's tough. Because once you put that jacket on, once that jacket has been placed on you, right. no matter what you do, right. it's never enough. It's still, you did this. You said this. So, But I don't think that's fair. I mean, like, it's enough in that, like, we've done, again, like you said, op-eds together. Yeah. We've shown up in some places publicly together. Absolutely. We're doing this together. Yes. Like, I actually believe, you know, you talked to me. My goodness, it's a couple of years ago. Yeah about not cancel culture, but council culture. Yes. You talked to me about the power of that, and that resonated with me because as a Jew, we have this tradition of teshuva. Teshuva, of atonement. Tesh atonement, right? It's this yeah. Hebrew concept of repentance. Yeah. And the idea is that we're all created in the image of God, but we're not God. We all sin. And I know that Christian theology has a very, has a very similar 100%. kind of ethos, right? Yes. So we all sin, and every year on Yom Kippur, Jews do teshuva, Right, we, we go to Shoal and we ask for forgiveness from God. And we acknowledge we all sin, we all make mistakes. So I feel like, at least the ethos that I try to manifest and that I try to practice right. is an ethos of council culture. Right. So you make a mistake, okay, but if you, with, in an authentic way, want to get past that, and I want to help you, 
I want to help you understand. I want to heal, not harm. Right. right? I want to educate, not kind of like exclude. So my view is somebody makes a mistake, got it, let's bring him in. And let's try to work on that together. Right. And then it's a learning process for both of us along the way. Right. And that's that's what happened with myself. Mm. Uh, we we had some extensive conversations that we didn't necessarily always agree on. And yeah. we also aren't experts in a lot of these spaces. I mean, I, I read like crazy and try to from from all aspects because no one wants to spew falsehoods. Right. But. In that same sense of the term being anti-Semitic uh, and an anti-Semite, within our community, there's another term that I feel I still have to deal with. Yeah. Um, and I'm watching others have to deal with, whether it's, again, just a, in the current state, yeah. the, the, the Kanye's and the Kyrie's. There's a term called buck breaking. And was that I don't really know what that means to be perfectly honest. So yeah, no, and I'll break it down for you. So in the times of slavery, the buck is normally the largest slave. Okay. And sometimes even that's where the, the term, you know, when someone's bucking up mm -hmm. is the most aggressive. Mm -hmm. Uh the one that gets out of line. So in that, what is done in a public forum. Mm -hmm. The slave masters would bring the buck so all the other slaves would see and that they would lash after lash, show them the power that they have and dehumanize them, which they're already dehumanized, but even more so to set an example to say, this is what you must do to fall in line or, or you will get buck broken. So now I have, stripped you of your dignity amongst your own people so you you will never step out of line again and all of these people watching right. will never step out of line so in that sense i personally and we we talked about this in private before that that exact term not the buck breaking term but we have to make an example out of nick cannon was brought to me that came to me so, so people said that about that that's what was happening. Yeah, to you. and so and still to this day, the us talking, us being cordial right now yeah. is oh, the Jewish people got him. He's he's right. been buck broken. He's one of them now. Right. So now, everything where we're trying to actually have reconciliation and truth goes out the window to the person who thinks like oh, he's just buck broken. Oh, he's just he's just a sellout. He, they, they got him, and you know we've seen all of these things that go viral. But then, how does it happen? Like, how does one heal, and how does one dialogue? Like, clearly, that's not what happened. Right. And and how do you get past that? Because, like, again, if you spread falsehoods about another people, a people that's been targeted and victimized, and you get called out on that, like, is there any sense of of responsibility or accountability? Accountability. Like, so how can there be accountability when people are saying, "Oh, no, 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 no." He can't because he's just being buck broken. Well, like, I think that's the opposite of what's happening. Well, see, that is the one reason why right now is probably the most important time to have this conversation. Because if we're going to speak about Kyrie Irving as someone who I know, love dearly, and know as someone to be a good person, but I've been in his shoes, I understand the mentality in which he's going through because it's like you can't win for losing because if you're stuck in the middle of I'm standing firm on being apologetic, 
practicing teshuva of, yeah. in that sense of wanting to atone, right. I can wholeheartedly say I know Kyrie Irving is not anti-Semitic. Right. But in that right of even sometimes just by saying I apologize for hurting people, people look like, oh, you a sellout. You were supposed to stand firm. Then, then how do we win? I mean, like, because when you promote a movie that suggests, like, as he did, and now he said, well, I didn't promote it. But when you are Kyrie Irving, one of the most popular players, one of the most visible players in the NBA, right. when you post a film to social media, unless you're posting films every 10 minutes, it's right. like, well, that's what he does. Right. When you suddenly say, this is a movie worth watching, that's a promotion. Okay. It essentially is. It's an it's an implicit promotion. He made a statement by posting that. Yeah, he did. Absolutely. Right? He didn't he wasn't posting, you know, Home Alone 2. <laughs> right, right. Really. right. He wasn't posting plane trains and automobiles. Right, right. So that being said, and the movie is saying the the J white Jews invented the Holocaust, that 6 million people weren't killed, that white Jews stole the identity of black people. Right. Quoting from Adolf Hitler. Right. Quoting from Henry Ford. Like, you know, this isn't exactly kind of, you know, a National Geographic kind of documentary or some anodyne These are the thing. tropes that scare Jewish people when they hear. These are, this is, Jewish people know when you dehumanize us this way, we know what's around the corner. So in that same statement as those are the tropes that dehumanize Jewish people, the same buck-breaking of Kyrie Irving must do this to practice Teshiva seems dehumanizing as well. So when we see the six things that Kyrie must do to get his job back, right. that's dehumanizing. That's but what's a better way of dealing with it then? So like he got asked a question right. at the press conference uh, last weekend. Indeed. And he was asked a question like, tell us about that movie, why he did it. He said, stop dehumanizing me. And the reporter was like, I'm just asking you a question about this movie, and are, do you have any accountability for it? So he immediately said, I don't have, uh, stop dehumanizing me. So the rest of us were like, why can't you just say, I don't, I, I don't agree with the so, lies about Jewish people? So as someone who's been in that position before, mm -hmm. um, I felt his pain. Because I've been to the space where I've, I've written the statements I've done the press conferences. I, I've said, anyone who knows me, knows my heart, knows that I love all people. Right. I could never be anti-Semitic. I, I, everything from me even talking about the, the Jewish lineage in my family, the, the people that I call friends and right. colleagues. Right. I'm sorry. Right. And then when someone after I've said all of that, right. still says, but tell me more about this movie you right. posted. Right. The rage inside of me was like, you've already broken me down to a point right. to where I've had to come out on a public forum and say sorry, right. which is already, to me, a buck-breaking concept. But now you want to continue to put this jacket on me yeah. because I may not understand everything that was in the movie. But or that I may not understand why I can't even say I am just like you. Well, that's what, so this is, I think, why this education process is so important. Because, like, when he had said that, don't humanize me, he hadn't apologized for anything. He right. hadn't shown any accountability. 
That well, that happened. was that was after because you guys had you you he was gonna make a donation. He that had no, happened before that is when he first made the statement. Right. When he was asked. He said, "Don't dehumanize me." Then right. Then he's we worked something out together. Right. Right. Then he got asked about it again. Right. And uh, it did not seem that he was sincere in the things he just said. Right. Right. Before. Right. And so that's but, where I was speaking from that statement right. of like I've already and and even again knowing Kyrie like I that's a person whose character I would say is he's, he's, he's a free thinker, but he only wants to help. He's a good guy, but he, would, that, he will now forever have the anti-Semitic jacket. Well, I don't know. Like, I guess the thing I got to tell you is I don't agree with that. Like, I think if Kyrie wants to, he can come through this. Just like somebody who says something homophobic. Well, that's what this forum is for. That's right. They can come through it. Like, I think all of us, you, me, Kyrie, everybody makes mistakes. Some mistakes are more consequential than others. And sometimes our fame and our profile make magnifies our mistakes. Yes. So when you're, again, one of the most popular players in the NBA, by the way, playing in Brooklyn, Brooklyn in New York City has, you know, more Jewish people in it than any other city in the world. Right. Think about that. New York City has more Jewish people in it than Tel Aviv in Israel. So you got to recognize that your words have power and your words have consequences. So when you don't take responsibility actively or at least authentically when you make a mistake, I got to tell you, especially considering the people who show up in the seats every night, or a lot of them, not all of them, there are not plenty of non-Jewish fans, but nonetheless, the place where you're situated, the place where you're playing, that hurt. And I know so many Jewish people who talk to me after that. They're kids with Kyrie jerseys, mm. right? They're kids with the shoes. They're kids who love the Nets or who love the Cavs or love the Celtics, the place he played. They were like, what do I do? Like, I thought Kyrie was a good guy. And now he's promoting a movie that says, you know, I'm like of the devil. Like, how could he do that to me? That was what I heard from Jewish people. The, in the days after that happened. So in that, where we get to a space that there's an, an attempt at atonement, there's a, an attempt where the conversation is truth and reconciliation. Um, our forum, where, again, and we don't have to debate this topic now, sure. but in the ideas of saying, Hebrews, you know, and I believe the title of the movie is from Hebrews to Negroes or something like that. Yeah. Um, but if the conversation is, if we believe that we are brothers and mm -hmm. we can coexist together, what is the issue of saying we originate from the same place or we have the same or that if I believe I'm a Hebrew, and you believe you're a Hebrew, shouldn't that be the alliance that drives us all the way to the finish line well, look, together? I, I do think, like, kind of where we started, I mean, I think there's so much the African-American community and the American Jewish community have in common. The people who hate us, hate one of us, tend to hate both of us. Right. And I think, again, there are bad actors. I really believe this. There are bad actors and particular individuals who, for their own purposes, want to keep us apart. Mm. So let's just get that out there that I don't think 
all of this is sort of organic. Oh, they're going to hate on this. They, gonna, they, they don't, are. They don't want to see us talking to each other but, and having civil conversations. Yeah, because I think there are people with agendas who want to not only divide us, they want to damage our ability to work together. Right. For their own purposes. Their to own control agenda, us. To control us. Um, and I think they come on both, they're on both sides. It's not like, oh, it's all these guys or all those guys or it's all the right or it's all the left. Right. Like, I see threats coming from multiple places. But that being said, I think the other thing that's important here is just to recognize that if you say I'm Hebrew and you're Hebrew, that has to be done in a way which acknowledges both of us have a real stake in this. When you say, I'm the real Hebrew and you're not, and I'm going to expropriate 2,000 years of your history or your suffering, that's where it hits Jewish people, you know, right in the face. Right. Now, by the way, there are, like I said before, there are Jews of color, right? No, many of them. And there are, there's a, there's a thriving black Hebrew community in Israel. But, you know, in December of 2019, a black Hebrew Israelite, who thought he was the real Jew and white Jews were fake Jews, literally went into a supermarket in Jersey City and murdered, gunned down in cold blood, three people because they were quote unquote fake Jews. Right. So that's the problem. The problem is, is that we got to acknowledge that if your sense of identity or anyone's sense of identity comes at the expense of someone else, mm. uh, that is not inclusive, right? That is intolerant. Right. And it, so this is really what this forum is for. It's for where we can have these conversations and combat hyper individualism in that sense of where we get this self-importance yeah. of this is mine. This is I own this. And therefore, if I own this, then you can't. You can't. But if it's belief systems, if we're creating a space to where I can say I believe what I believe, yeah. you believe what you believe, but we can coexist and have the dialogue, and not necessarily, I'm not trying to convince you to believe what I believe, and you're not trying to convince me otherwise, but at least we can be civil without consequence. Because again, in that same sense, going back to trauma versus trauma, we see that, you know, as an oppressed people, two groups of oppressed people, right. the oppression has not let up off of the black community. We believe we are currently still living in enslavement. Mm -hmm. the, the, the prison population, the, the, the way law enforcement is, is structured in our communities, the systemic issues from education all the way down to healthcare, all of these things that we deal with daily feel like we are still enslaved. And so, and as a Jewish person, I know that while many of us have a degree of privilege here, this can all go away in a heartbeat. Right. So as a Jewish person, I know that's the fear that you have. It's not even a fear. I mean, it's just awareness. Like my grandfather was a was a Jewish person from a Jewish family in Germany. And Germany was great to the Jews or in his recent memory until they told him he was an enemy of the state. They destroyed everything he ever loved. And they literally, you know, murdered his entire family. And then he came here. And my wife is a Jew from Iran. And that was a place where her, she and her Jewish family lived as long as they knew. Until one, and it was a good place to be. Until one day, uh, they turned them into enemies of the state. They destroyed everything that they ever loved. And it forced, like my grandfather, my wife, and 
my sister-in-law and the, my in-laws and everybody else to come here as refugees. So I know- It's a very real trauma for you. 40 years ago, everything blew up for them. Right. 70 years ago, everything blew up for my grandfather. And you know, before that, on my, uh, my grandfather's wife, my grandmother, she was a Russian Jew. And they lived there until the Cossacks decided they had to murder all the Jews right. and force them to flee. So 40 years ago, 70 years ago, 100 years ago, like Jewish trauma is, it's so interesting because I think we live with so much privilege here in America. And America's been an amazing place for its Jewish community in so many ways. But the reality is, is that we know that this can disappear like that. So the Jewish community is without awareness in mind we are hyper vigilant. Right. We're always worried. Right. And so it's interesting because I think we need to have this open conversation and we need to talk about what are the consequences. So when someone says, who is that guy? The guy from uh, Seinfeld, Michael Richards. Yes. He said some nasty racist things, I think at a comedy show where he right. lashed out at a heckler. Yes. And uh, he's gone. Right. And he said racist, offensive things. And by the way, it's not very funny. And he's gone. Right. Like, I don't know that that's wrong. Right. And so there were consequences that he faced. And I don't know that Michael Richards has ever apologized or ever tried to atone. Right. I'm not. I believe sure. he did. I think it was it did was he? a process. I remember. I mean, just a, there, it was a time of. And again, that brings me right back to the question I would have. And what is enough? What is enough? How, like, and how? Who deems if that apology is sincere or not? Because what happens even in my scenario, when I apologized or when we see Kyrie apologize or anyone apologizes, it's like, oh, they're just apologizing to get their job back. They don't sincerely want to operate and have true atonement or to shiva in that sense. Yeah. It's, and so, and because it's the ADL saying you have to do this in order to get your job back. So then <coughs> does like that the, make the apology sincere or is that someone with more power than you telling you what you have but to like, do? But like, I think it's like crazy. I, I think about Kyrie's brand ID. I think about Kyrie's reach. I think about Kyrie's role that he plays lives with so many young people. To say that we have more power than Kyrie also seems kind of crazy to me. He's got a lot of power on his own. I mean, infrastructure, though, we're talking again, if you talk like because if we want to talk about cultural influence, right? right? How many kids know what the ADL is on the playground? How many kids know who Kyrie is? If you look at popular culture, right. we just pulled 10 people on the street. They said, you know who Jonathan Greenblatt is in the ADL? You know who Kyrie Irving is in the Nets? There's no comparison. But he's got a lot of sway. So I'm just saying 100 percent on we, the like, on, I'm not going to I think. Honestly, he has a kind of presence. Kanye West. Kanye West has 31 million followers just on Twitter. There are 15 million Jews on the planet Earth. Right. Kanye West is, was a billionaire. Kanye West had the kind of cultural cachet that far exceeds the ADL or anybody else. So to your point, where if we're talking about masses of numbers and reach, definitely understand that and definitely understand the, the fears of how a trope can cause harm to an entire community. But 
one of those tropes is the the quiet infrastructure, the quiet power of the very few, where it's almost looked at as a, a, a monarchy in the sense of there's a small group of very powerful people that can make the large group, and again, because that goes back to that trope of Jewish people controlling the media. Yeah. And if and where you know if, if there's six company companies that have the majority stake in what we see, mm-hmm. and the heads of those companies happen to be Jewish people, or the the agencies in which we are all assigned to happen, the CEOs happen to be Jewish. The the banks that we bank at but happen. Like, so to our community, right. regardless of how many it is, it's still I, I those are you, the people in power. I gotta tell you, it's like number one the number of Jews in these places is so vastly, Jewish people is so vastly exaggerated. It is not what it's made out to be, number one. Right. Number two, they also happen to be, you know, they also happen to be white. They also happen to maybe live in Los Angeles. <laughs> Nobody right. thinks there's a conspiracy of, you know, Angelinos. It might be. But like this myth of like Jews controlling things has been used throughout history to justify, to legitimize the persecution of Jews. So how do we get rid of that? The, the especially when the consequences still feel like the they're ADL real. Is because I could tell you about everyday Jewish people being harassed, being a Crown Heights in, in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, and in Crown Heights twenty years ago. I'll tell you about the pogrom that happened when Jewish people were killed, and so I mean that was right in America. Again, that was right in Brooklyn. So it's a challenge because, yeah, there are some Jews who have, by dint of their own, you know, hard work and their own entrepreneurship and their own drive who have succeeded, and that success is being used against us. We are being demonized for the accomplishments that we have as if it's some part of some subterfuge or conspiracy when there's nothing of the case. So I want to touch on that because there's there's several people watching this that are turning their noses up at us and like this is this is not real this is this is for the media to pretend like we're getting along or to that we're having a civil conversation but within it there still is no real change there still is there what do you mean by that other than this dialogue how can we see people not be butt broken? How can we see, even on your side, tropes not see, be... Yeah, not how can we see be, people acknowledge, right. acknowledge when they offend and take responsibility for that? So in that... And recognize the consequences or the, like, the power that they have themselves. Like to deny that is, is deeply self-delusional, I think. So to, to speak to those naysayers and non-believers, to say, okay, this was pointless. They... They're sitting up there pontificating. Well, look, I think we got to have multiple conversations with a lot of different people. And, and welcome in. them to have to come sit and create yeah. a symposium to That's where right. we want to talk to have these. T- we got to have these conversations and lay it out. And people, like, I think I got to hear you and you got to hear me. And not just here. We have to listen to one another right. to understand. Like, I'm not going to sit here to someone say that the Jews control the media. And you shouldn't have to listen here to someone say, you know, black people have to supplicate in front of Jewish people. Like, I think both those things are incredibly offensive to me. But I think we can, through a process of kind of dialogue, 
That's how the healing starts. Because we're never going to beat hate by arresting people or by canceling people or by prosecuting people. We're only going to beat hate if we change hearts and minds. Right. And that starts with a degree of openness, with sincerity, and by learning to the point that we can, that we can walk in each other's Right. So just to even to simplify it for a moment, what are the things that are okay to hate? Like uh, we have, it's called to hate or not to hate. It's two opposing sides. What do you hate? Cheese. <laughs> I do. I don't like cheese. I don't eat it. Maybe on pizza, but I don't like cheese. But but I really hate it. The, and, and, and I hate the lemons that my that my mother-in-law puts in her stew. I hate that too. <laughs> I do. So, but obviously there are things that, as, as, as we joke, but there are certain things that we may not see eye to eye on. Sure. And there's where we say, we can say, I, we, we hate discrimination. Look. We, we hate the tropes that are, are placed out there, but a lot of times we don't know the difference between, oh, we know this to be true, and therefore I hate the res- the the results of it. It's a, it goes back to the James Baldwin idea of what we talked about, where he was even deemed anti-Semitic at times, where he had to write an entire essay to say he didn't have any hate towards Jewish people, but right. he, there were certain things about his circumstances where Jewish people were involved that right. made him deem. I, I hate that. And I think the same thing could be said about, let's say, he was the tenant of a Jewish landlord. Yes. And so the question is, does the Jewish landlord hate, quote-unquote, is the Jewish landlord a racist because mm. he dislikes James Baldwin as his tenant because right. he's black or because he's not paying the rent on time? Right. I don't know if he paid the rent. I haven't right. an example. Those... So the question is, like, what is driving the division? And how do we recognize the hate when it's raw right. Right, and irrational? And try to try to address that and try to unpack that and try to dismantle it. So the answer is we must hate hate. Yeah, I mean we I got think- I mean is in that idea of like anything that's low frequency, anything that is negative and not moving the conversation forward as a brotherhood. I, yeah, we've got to those hate, is what we gotta do away with. We gotta hate those who prejudge. We gotta hate those who evaluate you based on the color of your skin or where you happen to worship, you know, or who you might love. We gotta hate those people who already categorize you without knowing you. We right. gotta hate the generalizations that lead someone to say, all Jews are this or all black people are this. Or, you know, all Muslim people are this or all, you know, gay people are that. Like, we've gotta hate those who would create the conditions in which we say these people are eternally apart because they can never reconcile. Right. Like, I don't believe that. That's why we're here. So the idea of us having a unified narrative, uh, a safe space to have this dialogue without consequence, because in our community, we feel like we're being silenced. We can't even we, we, we can't say I read this book and I believe this because therefore I get punished. Yeah, it's funny because, like, and again, in our community, <laughs> we think if you are reading that book and pushing it and not acknowledging the hate that's in it, that increases the normalization of anti-Semitism against Jews. So in our community, we feel like that you would put that pl- thing out there that's so clearly toxic. Right. It's got stuff in there. Like, again, quotes from Adolf Hitler 
in my mind, is kind of a disqualifying factor about right. what you should be reading. <laughs> right. So, like, for your, I understand what, you, what you're saying about for our community, if we even post a book, we get canceled. canceled. My community say, if you'd even post, why would you even post that book? Clearly, you want to cancel us. Like, that's what it is. It is a, it is a willingness to accept a narrative about Jews where we've lost before we start. Right. And, it, and the conversation ultimately is about identity. So in the narrative of, I think what makes it difficult for, and again, I'm not speaking for all black people, but when we speak of our origins, the indigenous African experience is erased when it comes to talking about religion and history. So you, that you mean you're referring to the experience of African people before they were be, uh, just even our yeah even our we're, our the concept of slavery in itself is not only are we going to take you from your native land and make you believe in our systems but we're going to erase in the same way that you you yeah. don't want to be erased we're going to yeah. erase everything that you ever knew about yourself and give you an entire new doctrine because it's sad but. Black people are the only people whose God doesn't look like them. Mm. So when you see that, it's and you're fed another story, yeah. a Kyrie Irving who is only trying to discover himself right. and get away from what we believe, has, the lies that have been told to us, when we feel like, hey, I got something where I think my origin is true to who I am, we're told that that's hate speech. But like, but it can be if the origin story that you're drawing from is one that relies on the marginalization of another people. So in this case, or the, or the demonization of another people. So that's the thing. Like if Kyrie, for example, had stood up and said, this is why I believe this. This is what I found to be factual or moving this is my process okay but is it too late to for him to say that is it too late for that dialogue and that conversation to happen because now he's he, he's part of the club he has on the jacket of you're anti-semitic because when given the chance to say are you anti-semitic or not he didn't say no i'm not anti-semitic when he was asked point blank, he didn't answer the question. Now, I, he didn't. He didn't in the locker room on Thursday. I think he. Thursday think, the third. Again, as someone again who had to wear the jacket. Yeah. Once you say I am not anti-Semitic, anyone who knows me knows that I love all people. I believe people should be able to practice religious freedom, be the people that they want to be. I've said all of these things, and for you to continue. So I'm I'm still I'm still dealing with it to this day. If you right. look at my Twitter DMs, I'm why does Nick Cannon still have jobs? He's anti-Semitic. He believes this. When I've apologized profusely, sure. And in the and on the other side, those are those people. And then there's another side of people who say, oh, you've been buck broken because they forced you to apologize. So we don't right. even you don't even have value in our community. So, I mean, it's like a lose lose situation. So that's right? why Kyrie you, reacted the way he did. Yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> it's a lose situation for you. I meant. But like yeah. for Kyrie, I think if he when it was brought to his attention, you might not have realized. I think a lot of times, and he's a young man who's trying to discover. Look, things. I think a lot. I, I think ignorance mm -hmm. is not. It can be an explanation, but it is not an excuse for anti-Semitism or any form of intolerance. 
Ignorance is not an excuse. It could be an explanation. Well, I didn't know. So then you, you say, oh, well, you have a problem with this. Let me understand why. Oh, I see. It says that white people, white Jews invented the Holocaust and six million Jews didn't get killed. Okay, that's, I, I, I know that isn't right. Right. There's a gigantic historical record. So then you should be able to say, and if he had said this, like the next day, it would have been deeply different. Deeply different. Something would have gone away. If he said, you know what? Now I realize that some of the things in that movie are incredibly offensive to Jewish people, and I regret that I posted it without thinking about those consequences. He could have said something as simple and straightforward as that and recognized that, you know, I realize why, you know, again, I play in Brooklyn and where there happen to be a lot of Jewish people, and I realize how offensive this must have been to them. I'm sorry. I got to tell you, I think it would have been different. Now, I get... I do. I do. I get what you're saying about people in the black community said, why should he even have to apologize? But look, we all got to live here together. Indeed. We all got to acknowledge we have the capacity to hurt one another. Right. And we have to acknowledge that when you, when you get paid to be on a public stage mm -hmm. because of your gifts, in his case, his athleticism, um, you got to recognize that you have... Responsibility. Yeah, and that your words, your words have a kind of weight that's unlike the ordinary person. So even if you didn't intend it that way, again, it can be an explanation, but once brought to your attention, that ignorance is not an excuse for intolerance. So in this, so I like you know he's not he is not an elected, you know official. He is not like a, a some kind of scholar. He is not some person who is expected to be literate on everything. But when he decides to privilege that movie with access to his platform, he takes responsibility for what's in it. So. And he, did, he didn't, that's how he got in this mess. In the, in the practice of teshuva, in atonement. How much do I love the fact that you keep quoting teshuva? I think that's pretty amazing. <laughs> because I, I've, in, in knowing, learned? there's steps yeah, I've yeah, learned. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. there's steps, and when you're saying true atonement, yeah. no one, one, it's truth and reconciliation. No one wants to speak falsehoods. So to speak out and say, those were lies, I've, I, propagated, I put things out there, I put tropes out there, and I was irresponsible for spreading information that was not true. Yeah. That's one step. Yeah. The next step, or and even the first step, is to actually say, and have true remorse. But the ultimate step is repair. Right. So, right. as someone who has gone through it, Yeah. It's very difficult to repair where I may, you and I can have a civil conversation. Uh, me and Michael Goldman can have a civil conversation, have love for one another and consider each other family. But the average person yeah. that sees me walking down the street or follows me on Twitter says, Nick Cannon is anti-Semitic. I seen it. He said all of these things that he, and the only reason why he apologized is yeah. because he wanted to keep his job with Viacom and Fox and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and all of these people. So on a person like myself, uh, uh, and someone as extreme as Kanye, someone as uh, willing to have dialogue like Kyrie, how do we monitor or how do we even deal with these individuals to say, there is room for repair. Well, you know, look, like all of us are responsible for our own actions, right? And so 
I, you know, of course there are going to be those haters. Of course. There are going to be those There's people, people say, out there that feel like I didn't say anything wrong, and, and well, neither that. did Kanye, and neither did Kyrie, and so stand firm, my brother, and so there's power gonna be, to the people. There's going to be that. There's going to be other people who say nothing you can ever do will make up for what you did. There's right. going to be that, too. So let's just acknowledge there are going to be people on the edges, if you will. But I think our goal should be how do we bring how do we work to bring our communities together? And you know, the process of dialogue is the first start. By the way, I haven't had that dialogue with Kyrie. I don't know who in the Jewish community he's talking to. He doesn't talk to me. There are plenty of people right. he can talk to. So he's got to have that dialogue himself, I think. I don't know who Kanye is talking to either. I'm not aware of anybody there. <laughs> right. um, all that being said, you know, Nick, I think each of us, you know, there's an expression or like it's a Talmudic phrase that when you save one life, you save the world entire. So if we can repair, if we can, through the act of engagement, find a way to heal between us and Malakana behavior, each of us can save the whole world. We can. I don't want to be grandiose, but I think the opportunity we have here is to model what we'd like to see spread you know, in our communities and across the country. And I think that is a, a great place to conclude um, because as many can see that we, we're not always going to agree. Yeah. Um, we're always going to have, you know, different opinions and it can be two opposing sides, but to be able to have dialogue, uh, and be honest and not always, there's not like, we're not scholars in that sense of where we're going to deem the solution and the resolution to be that, but to say that we can have true understanding amongst each other and operate yeah. out of love, um, is the goal. Yep. And, and like, I think more love, more love would make all of us better. Yeah. More love would make our communities better. More love would make the country better. At a time when we're so divided, yeah. we're so polarized, what the extremists want is for us to be at odds. Yes. And we've got to resist that at every step of the way. So that's the goal here is to turn all of the hate into love and to hate the hate. Yeah. Uh, but... I think it's an ongoing conversation. It's not finished. Uh, I think, you know, hopefully we can welcome many more people to our symposium uh, to have this dialogue. Hopefully this, this intrigued people. Hopefully this uh, triggered some. So yeah. Hopefully there's questions and concerns about things that we have said, yeah. but at least we have a free and open forum yeah. to discuss these things to eventually get further yeah like i'm not going to and you shouldn't but i'll speak for myself for a moment like i'm not going to sit back and let things get said that i think are anti-semitic or offensive in any way right i'm going to say why this is wrong and i'm not going to abide in it nonetheless like we both want to get to the same place right which is a healthier happier outcome for our communities but but not one like like a way that we do it nick so we model openness and mutual understanding. Yes, because I, I think we have the same goal. We have the same idea of we're an oppressed people. We're people who have experienced lots of trauma. Yeah. Who no longer want that for our children. You're here. This has been To Hate or Not To Hate, the inaugural episode. There you go. Here at the ADL headquarters, I look forward to doing this again, my brother. Me too. I love you. Me too. I love you too. <laughs>